Chapter 50, Bible Bashing. McGuckin seemed even more furious than usual about catching them out of class. Nick suspected it had something to do with her first-hand discovery of his stomach flab. It was clear that his earlier wariness of Nick's had evaporated, probably because he was now a world-famous ghost hunter. It was sort of nice to have things back to normal, except it seemed McGuckin's new plan was to make it impossible for them to progress to 11th grade. The tension was excruciating. Nix had a thousand things she needed to discuss with Jordan as he sat there picking his braces, but this time McGuckin didn't have any flooding bathrooms to attend to and spent the entire time preventing the detainees from conversing. Nix thought about passing a note, but getting caught would earn them more time in the lockup. So Nix bided her time and kept herself occupied by watching her fellow inmates. It was only second period and the room was already overflowing. Ms. Winkle had correctly predicted McGuckin's intentions. This had to be some sort of record. Several familiar faces surrounded them. Loaf and Danny, a few juniors she'd seen around, and even Beryl sat in the seat closest to McGuckin's desk, perpetually red-faced. Nix tried to wink at her to help her relax, but with the sunglasses still on, Nix couldn't tell if Beryl noticed. Nix was going to miss the all-important algebra test, but that was probably a mercy. Mr. Slowey would let them make it up later, wouldn't he? The vice principal reached a new low when he had cold cafeteria lunches brought into the detention room. There weren't enough for everyone by half, yet the food looked so unappetizing, two trays remained untouched. Nix had claimed a lunch, but ended up giving it to Jordan, who didn't seem to mind frozen tater tots. A few minutes before seventh period, Mr. Slowey entered and had a whispered conversation with the vice principal. McGuckin looked straight at her. Come up here, Nix. This was a surprise. Was Mr. Slowey going to insist she take the test now? Nix pulled her t-shirt free of her crannies and, as gracefully as possible, walked to the front of the room. Turn out your pockets, McGuckin said. Was he getting her back for threatening him with the scissors? Nix took everything out and put it on the desk. A small container of peach lip balm, a pen cap, a flosser, half a stick of gum that had fused to the wrapper, and a folded piece of paper. Ah, flip. McGuckin opened the paper. She was right, Mr. Slowey said. This is the answer key. Who was right? Nix asked. I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't going to cheat. Mr. Slowey and McGuckin both laughed. The algebra teacher put the answer sheet in his pocket. Automatic fail for the semester, whack. Better start preparing for summer school, unless you plan to be a sophomore another year. McGuckin grinned. And for homework, I want a ten-page paper on the negative effects cheating has on your education. Jordan wrinkled his brow at her, no doubt wondering when Nix had officially crossed over to the dark side. Nix wanted to pick up one of the chairs and beat Fawn over the head with it. She should have known there was a catch. Her foster sister would never do something out of the goodness of her heart. Her heart was as good as Tiago was ugly. After whispering her explanation to Jordan, Nick spent the last hour planning her revenge. Vaughn was about to learn what happened when you angered someone with superpowers. Fifteen minutes after school was officially over, McGuckin finally released the students with a promise that mortal pain and abject humiliation awaited them upon breaking another rule. 
Luckily, someone had tipped off the bus drivers that students were being held hostage, so none of the kids had to walk home. Nix and Jordan hurried to the auditorium, only to find the cast and crew laughing and playing cards with no sign of a director. Tiago sat at the edge of the stage and waved them over. With a rush of excitement, Nix grabbed Jordan by the arm and walked quickly, jogging made fat bounce, toward her eternal soulmate. Tiago held up three thin books. Leo brought them. What are they? Nix couldn't take her eyes off Tiago long enough to examine what was in his hands. After staring at McGuckin's fish face all day, Tiago was aloe on her sunburned senses. Yeah, books, Tiago said. Now Nix understood. She was supposed to look through and identify Ms. Winkle's attackers. Hopefully the kids were actually from Woods Cross and not out-of-town troublemakers. While they waited for Mrs. Finkbone to show up, Nix pored over the class pictures of the most recent high school yearbook. Jordan watched over his shoulder, cracking her up with comments like, Look at this kid! Apparently his blind grandma dressed him for picture day. And, Who told this girl it was okay to wear six shades of eyeshadow? Her face looks like a homemade Christmas ornament. After several pages of shallow jibes at the student's appearance, Nix turned the page and gasped, That's one of them. I'm sure of it. Jordan grabbed the book and examined it. Dylan Porter, senior. He would have graduated last year. Jordan pulled a notebook out of his pack and began a list. Jerks to turn in to the police. Number one, Dylan Porter. Number two, the scent of rotten flowers clogged Nix's airways. How did you do on the test? Fawn asked, her expression inscrutable. Nix had 400 highly offensive things to share with Fawn, but she decided revenge would be better if it came out of nowhere. Awesome, Nix said. Thanks for asking. Fawn smirked and wandered off. Jordan shook his head. Think Boone should recast her as the sea witch. Nix glanced at Tiago. He didn't seem curious about the exchange with Fawn. In the next yearbook, they found one more boy and the girl. By the time they'd gone through all three books, only one boy remained to be identified. We're still missing the dark-haired guy with the goatee, Nick said. The ringleader. His picture is not in any of these. Jordan cracked his knuckles on the stage floor. He could go to Hawny. All right, let's get into our circle. Mrs. Finkbone's voice rose above the tumult of the restless students. Nix groaned inwardly. After solving crimes, going back to rehearsing a play seemed terribly tedious. As soon as Nix had delivered her fourteen words with unflinching accuracy and planktony feeling, she grabbed the yearbooks from Tiago and sat among the curtains and equipment backstage. Hi, Nix. Nix almost dropped the books. She hadn't noticed Sarah crammed in between a stack of set boxes in the prop closet. Sarah sat with her knees up, typing something into her phone. Her eyes were red-rimmed. Had she been crying? This was always the moment of decision Nix hated. Watching someone without their knowledge was uncomplicated, but now that Sarah had seen her, Nix either had to excuse herself and possibly give the impression she didn't care, or sit and ask a lot of nosy, sympathetic questions designed not to comfort but to satisfy her own curiosity. Nix decided she'd try something in between and pretend not to notice her puffy eyes. How are the stage designs coming? Sarah looked up to answer and promptly began sobbing into her hands. If Nix felt awkward earlier, it was nothing to how she felt now. Pretending she didn't notice was out of the question. But what in the world could she say? Was Nix supposed to interrupt the fit of tears to offer her condolences? 
Did crying people need to talk about their problems, or did they want to be left alone? But as Nick stood watching, trying to decide which course of action to take, a pool of genuine sympathy welled up inside her. Nick sat next to Sarah and pulled her into a clumsy embrace. To Nick's great relief, Sarah didn't pull away, but sat quietly sniffing on her shoulder. The fact that Sarah didn't fight Nix's impromptu hug didn't make it any less awkward, but Nix didn't deny what a satisfying thing it was to administer a much-needed embrace. For some reason, she didn't get to do a lot of that when spying in the graveyard. After a few moments, Sarah straightened and wiped her face with the sleeves of her sweater. Sorry, she said with an embarrassed smile. I guess you caught me at the wrong moment. Sarah pressed a button on her phone and slid it into her purse. Nick scooted back to give Sarah a little space. Is everything okay? Everything's fine. I'm just being a baby. Sarah pressed under her eyes. Nick's assumed it was to keep the mascara from running. I'm sure you don't want to hear about it. Nick's nearly smiled. This was way too easy. Sarah must be positively dying to unload on someone. Sometimes it helps to get it off your chest, Nick said innocently. Sarah sniffed. My dad is out of control. What do you mean? You know how people have been camping out on the road in front of our house? Um, no. Apparently McGuckin's stupid video made national news, and crazies from all over the country are coming to see the haunted mansion. Dad scares them off with the hose, and if that doesn't work, the gun. That's understandable, I guess, Nick said. My mom is quick to pick up a firearm as well. Not only is he suing McGuckin, now he's looking to sue the Padillas, and the news stations that played the video. The Padillas? But what about me? I was just as much to blame. And Fawn and Jordan were on the video. Sarah took a tissue from her purse and dabbed at her nostrils. Apparently that was how princesses blew their nose. The Padillas are the only ones with any real money. No offense. Trust me, I'm well aware of the three economic brackets between me and Tiago. He seriously won't let me out of his sight. Tiago? My dad. It was very difficult for Nix not to appear relieved. That's gotta be tough. At least he cares about you. Sarah sneered. He doesn't care if I'm happy. Even before all the stupid ghost stuff. He didn't want me to hang out with Tiago. He doesn't approve of his family. What? Why? Nix had a hard time believing anyone would not approve of the Padillas. In addition to their obscene riches, the Padillas were clever, friendly, and disgustingly attractive. Sarah shrugged. My dad's weird like that. He's got his own ideas about who's good enough for me. He didn't like Quincy, either. Maybe he'll change his mind after he gets to know Tiago, or wins a bunch of money from his family. Nix tried not to feel pleased that Tiago might be single again. Not that he and Sarah were officially official. I'm such a mess. It's probably because I haven't been sleeping well, either. Nix frowned. Worried about Pillowhead? My house. I can't even go near the stairs without breaking onto a sweat. Tiago was telling me about the evil spirits and stuff. Nix resisted the urge to correct the misplaced preposition. Don't listen to Tiago, she said. Even if there had been ghosts in your house, they didn't really hurt anyone, did they? They just scared McGuckin spitless. Of course, the man had recovered quickly and was already salivating on the students again. Sarah didn't look convinced. Does it seem to you like this month has been kind of weird? Kind of weird? More like the craziest, scariest month in the history of mankind. A little bit, maybe. But I'm confident everything will work out. And you have every day after school to hang out with Tiago. Your dad can't keep you from being with him at rehearsals. 
That's another thing, Sarah swiveled to face Nix. These practices are a joke. At first I had a bunch of ideas about the musical, but when I tried to get some direction, Mrs. Finkbone just mumbled something about working out the details later. I finally cornered her in her classroom today and told her I wanted to get some aquariums for the set. She said the trauma department didn't have the resources to construct any new scenery or buy equipment. So I said I could pay for them, but she claimed there was some rule about the school not accepting donations from students or parents due to favoritism or something stupid. It's like she doesn't even care about this dumb play. She never shows up on time, and when she does, she's usually in the back not even paying attention. Nix had never heard Sarah talk so much. So what does Mrs. Finkbone want you to do about the set? She said I'll have to make do with what we already have, try to make it fit the undersea theme. Here I am every day spending three hours sitting on my butt. I think tomorrow I'll just get Chuck to take me home after school. Nix tried not to let her panic show. If Sarah quit the musical, it will have all been for nothing. I'm sure when things get further along, we'll be able to figure out some cool set designs, Nick said, and I know Tiago would be disappointed if you bailed. You think so? It was obvious Nix's remark had hit a chord. I think Tiago really likes you. The win against every impulse Nix had to encourage their relationship, but she knew it might be the only way to keep Sarah from being home alone. Maybe you should talk to him about it. Yeah, right, and have that miniature brunette sink her nails into my back again? I'm pretty sure she's relinquished ownership by this point. Anyway, the brunette is busy being the star right now. Nix pulled the curtain back to reveal the circle of cast members. Fawn seemed to be arguing with Mrs. Finkbone about one of her lines. I don't think she'll notice. Sarah nodded, steeled herself, and headed down the side of the stage toward the theater seats where Tiago sat not practicing his chomping with the other piranhas. Nix pushed away the ridiculous feelings of jealousy and tried to be happy the disaster was averted. From the cast circle, Jordan caught Nix's eye and motioned her over. Although she hated walking across open spaces in public, which involved presenting the entire world with a full view of her rear end, Nix's curiosity was stronger than her pride. She crouched behind Jordan's chair. Fawn was lecturing the cowardly lionfish on why he should embellish his lines with the occasional growl. What were you and Sarah talking about? Jordan whispered. You didn't tell her about our trip to the Abendroths, did you? That'll just freak her out. We were talking about Tiago. What a surprise. Don't be jealous. We would have talked about you too, but... Excuse me, we're trying to rehearse here. Nix got up so fast she went dizzy and had to grab the back of Jordan's chair. Fawn stood there, glaring at them from the other side of the circle. Just because you only have one line... Doesn't mean the rest of us don't have to learn ours. Fawn sat back down with a huff. Hot spots formed on Nix's forehead. She quickly sat on the floor behind Jordan's chair and pretended to look through the yearbooks. Stupid Fawn. How dare she? First she frames her for cheating, and now she's got to publicly shame her yet again? Mrs. Finkbone cleared her throat. Everyone waited for her to speak, but it turned out she was just clearing her throat. She hacked once more and spit into her hanky, effectively ending the interruption. Jordan realized with a start that it was his line. Come on, lionfish, he recited. You can't go to sleep in the sea anemones. We've got to rescue Dorothy. I have a suggestion, Fawn said, causing several quiet groans. I think you should sound more desperate here. The way you said your line makes it sound like you don't even care about me. Well, about Dorothy. 
I have a suggestion, Jordan said, mimicking Fawn's tone. Why don't you let Mrs. Finkbone try directing for a while? I'm sure she won't mind. And by the way, Nick says two lines and she still outperforms you. It seemed Jordan's infatuation with Fawn had officially ended. All side conversations ceased immediately, and a fire lit Fawn's eyes. Even those messing around in the audience seats could tell something was going on and looked to the stage. Nix's neck and face burned as she hid behind the chair. She wanted to kick Jordan for bringing her into this, and she would have too, except the way he defended her was so completely heroic. Once again, the entire cast seemed to be waiting for Mrs. Finkbone to restore the peace, but instead she got up and refilled her coffee cup off stage. Could anyone be that oblivious? Fawn took advantage of the director's absence to fire off a retort. I'll tell you why, you little moron, Fawn hissed. Because the director doesn't have a clue what she's doing. And I've been the lead in over seven plays, four of which were musicals. So if I were you, I'd shut your... Fawn fell silent as Mrs. Finkbone returned with her cold cup of coffee. Had the director heard? If she had, she didn't seem to care. She looked exhausted more than anything. Jordan breathed heavily beside Nix. She was sure he had more to say. Don't, Nix whispered. Do you ever read the Bible, Fawn? Jordan asked in a calm tone. Fawn rolled her eyes. Can we just keep going with the script? You were the one that stopped us in the first place, said the girl playing the good jellyfish of the North. She spoke hesitantly, as if afraid of bringing Fawn's wrath to her side of the room. Fawn stood again. Yeah, so? What's wrong with you people? You can't take a little advice from someone who knows. Do you have any idea how much acting lessons cost? You should be glad I'm even. Ecclesiastes 5-3. Jordan's voice rang in the large auditorium. Look it up. It might interest you. Fawn stood dumbfounded. The rest of the cast seemed equally nonplussed. Nix sincerely doubted anyone had challenged Fawn to read a Bible verse before. Weird, yes, but at least it shut her up. Several people jotted down the reference. Eventually, the lionfish picked up where Jordan left off and the rehearsal resumed at a much faster pace, since Fawn was now seething silently in her chair. Nix remained on the floor behind Jordan, in case any more interesting squabbles broke out, but the rest of the practice went smoothly. Sergeant Frost had taken to picking up Jordan from rehearsal to make sure he went straight home. On the way, Jordan chatted about how much good the musical was doing him, keeping him out of trouble and such. Nix glanced at Sergeant Frost often enough to see the act wasn't going over very well but at least he was allowing Jordan to participate. That put him way ahead of Mrs. Wack in parental permissiveness. Nix pushed down the guilt. Her mother was alone, yes, but she had brought it on herself. So what's a cleasy whatever say? Nix asked to distract herself from bad daughterness. A fool's voice is known by multitude of words, Jordan said. I read it a couple days ago and thought it might come in handy. Nix bunched her eyebrows. Is that really what it says? She thought the Bible was full of religious stuff, not one-liners and insults for your enemies. Jordan grinned. You think I can make that up? And the best part is, God's the one who said it, so Fawn can't really argue. Even if Fawn does look it up, she probably won't understand it. I don't think it counts as a cut-down if they have no idea what you're talking about. You should have gotten one of those plain English Bibles and explained it to her. Who cares if the ignorant can't comprehend my insults, Jordan said. Only proves my point. I'm going to take that Bible away from you if you can't behave, 
Sergeant Frost said from the front seat. Jordan scowled. Religious persecution is the reason the pilgrims left England. You know that, don't you? Despite himself, Sergeant Frost smiled. Just stay out of the Songs of Solomon. I remember Mom saying it was a little risque. Too late, Jordan said in a flat voice. To tell you the truth, I was disappointed. Cable is much worse. Sergeant Frost didn't respond, but Nix got the idea he was planning to disconnect the TV in Jordan's room. When the car passed by the turnoff to the trailer park, Nix remembered the cats. She had to save them but had no idea what she might say in a note, or even who to give it to. Was it already too late for the poor refugee felines? She quickly whispered Ms. Winkle's anonymous note idea to Jordan, and they planned to meet early the next morning at the school library to compose it. Although she could do it from the Cherry's computer, she had to ask them to put in the password every time, and she didn't want to take a chance on someone tracing the email back to her. Sergeant Frost cast a few suspicious looks in the rear view, but before he had a chance to ask any nosy questions, they pulled up to the Cherry's. I guess you heard about Agent Lip, Nick said. Sergeant Frost turned off the engine. About him visiting you? Nix had wanted to tell Jordan about it the whole school day. How had it completely slipped her mind during rehearsal? I think he might be Pillowhead. He had a white pillowcase in his bag, at any rate. Mr. Cherry knocked him out with a water bottle. Sergeant Frost's eyes went wide. What did you say? I guess the Cherries figured out that Agent Lip was a bad person. Mrs. Cherry dropped him off at the Midland Police Station. That doesn't seem right, Sergeant Frost said. I'll have to go check on him. Tell him I have his teeth. Jordan and his dad both stared at Nix. It's a long story. Oh, that reminds me. You should both come in and have your futures read by Mr. Cherry. He's seriously amazing. Sergeant Frost gave her an I-thought-you-were-smarter-than-that look. Maybe another time, Nix. Is everything going okay at the Cherries? Yeah. Except for the creepy vein-twisting, but it's not like Sergeant Frost would believe that. He got out and opened Nix's door. Jordan rolled down his window to say bye. Nix whispered, I've got a plan to get Fawn back tonight. I want to hear all about it tomorrow. Too bad I don't have McGuckin's camcorder. I'd love to get it on video and send it to the news. Sergeant Frost faded down the dark road with Jordan, waving out the back window. It turned out Nix had beaten Fawn home, and Mrs. Cherry must have been out shopping. Nix had the house to herself. She walked around a bit, looked into rooms she hadn't before, rifled through drawers, and satisfied every curious impulse. She felt guilty, but it was so much fun. The most interesting thing, however, she found in her own room. She'd forgotten about Gary's recorder. Maybe there were earlier recordings that would hint at his true motives. After fiddling with the machine, Nix managed to start at the beginning. The recording started with Gary, driving, and sort of thinking out loud. He mentioned some known facts about McGuckin's footage, the persons he was interested in interviewing, and even his hypothesis of whether the video was evidence of true paranormal activity. He totally believed it. Apparently he was speeding to get to Woods Cross to conduct two or three interviews that evening, and mentioned he would have had plenty of time, except he'd had to turn around in Baltimore, when he realized he'd forgotten his dust mite pillow cover. What the heck was a dust mite pillow cover? Apparently he wasn't Pillowhead, though. Kind of a weird coincidence. The car pulled up. After a minute, Mrs. Cherry called. Girls, are you home? In my room, Mom. Nix nearly swallowed her tongue. Had she just called Mrs. Cherry Mom? It had been a total accident, but in a way, it kind of felt awesome. 
and severely guilt-inducing. Did her real mother even miss her? It helped to imagine Mrs. Wack whistling away, glad to finally be free of her lying, backstabbing daughter. Mrs. Cherry knocked, then peeked into the room. Nix casually covered the recorder with her leg. Hi, dear. I was thinking about hamburgers and french fries for dinner. Does that sound good to you? Sounds delicious. You need any help? I'll be fine. I did want to ask you about school today. The vice principal called and said you'd been caught cheating? Aw, flip. Nix was dying to throw Fawn under the bus, but denying the accusation would just come across as immature and dishonest. Besides, Nix was going to pay Fawn back in a few hours, and that method would be much more satisfying. It was stupid. I'm sorry. I promise it will never happen again. Mrs. Cherry's expression changed. She almost looked confused. Had she been expecting Nix to deny it? Child welfare didn't kick kids out of foster homes for cheating at school, did they? Nix almost asked about Gary, but decided to wait. Sergeant Frost was going to check on him. She could get the details from Jordan later. When she was alone again, Nix turned down the volume on the recorder and put the speaker to her ear. The interview with Sergeant Frost was pretty standard. Jordan's dad didn't know much about the events of that night, so it was short. He did say some nice things about Nix's reliability and a down-to-earthiness. Also that she was going through a tough time and probably shouldn't be bothered. What tough time was Sergeant Frost talking about? Changing parents? Getting her ear chewed off? Being accused of various felonies? At some point, Fawn had come home. Tim McGraw started up so loud, Nix couldn't hear Gary's recording anymore. She went downstairs and called Jordan, but Sergeant Frost hadn't come back from visiting Agent Lip. So, your dad, Nick said, did he ask you what my heart-stopping thing was? Jordan chuckled. I think he was too embarrassed I caught him eavesdropping. It's not like he'd believe us anyway. He's skeptical of anything not proven by science. That reminded her of something she had been meaning to ask Jordan for a while. Remember when you said you knew for a fact there was no God? Mrs. Cherry stopped what she was doing and cocked her head slightly. What about it? Jordan asked. I was just wondering why you said that, and if you still believe it after, well, everything. Jordan sighed. It's kind of a deep conversation for over the phone while Amy's exploding people's brains. Yeah, that's fine. We can talk about it later. Don't let me forget. Funny. I'm serious. Bye, Jordan. Don't forget we're meeting early. Dinner was so mouth-watering that Nix had two and a half hamburgers. Fawn gave her more than one, no wonder you're the size of an adult panda look. To be honest, dinner stressed Nix out more than she would admit. That morning she had noticed her jeans were too tight to button properly, maybe because the cherries were actually feeding her real food. A belt would hide that for a while, but if she got any bigger, she'd have to buy new clothes. The thought made her feel like she was in a car, rolling down a hill with no brakes. She locked herself in her room immediately after dinner. She felt sick from eating so much. The two and a half hamburgers sat in her stomach like friends who had betrayed her. On top of everything that was going on, she had to deal with this garbage again. Since the summer ended, Nix had been so distracted by crimes and punishments that she hadn't even weighed herself once. She'd almost forgotten she was fat. Well, not really. But with Fawn's scornful looks and the tight pants, the shadow was suddenly upon her full force. She hadn't forgotten how much she hated herself. The impulse to permanently leave her disgusting body was overwhelming. She hadn't felt this desperate in years. A voice in the back of her head kept up a steady stream of commentary. 
You're only going to get fatter. Soon you'll be so big you can't walk upstairs. You'll be so obese Jordan won't want to be seen with you. You won't be able to put on your own shoes or fit in a restaurant booth. No one will love you. It's only a matter of time. Nix turned off the light so no one would bother her while she cried. A hand on her shoulder woke her several hours later. She sat up confused. Her bedroom was empty. Had she dreamed the touch on her shoulder? It seemed to hold some residual warmth from the contact. Ugh. She hadn't dressed for bed or even taken off her shoes. She rolled over in an attempt to go back to sleep, but Gary's digital recorder stuck into her ribs. Nix growled. Now she was probably awake enough that she wouldn't be able to go back to sleep without getting into her pajamas and brushing her teeth. Stupid, ingrained hygiene habits. She yawned and opened the drawer of the bedside table to put the recorder away, but her curiosity drive kicked in. Would her own interview with Gary seem different? Now that she knew more about him, his earlier recordings made his motives pretty clear. It seemed the Cherries had misjudged Gary. Or was there something in the interview that Nix had missed? Something that scared Mrs. Cherry enough to have her husband knock him out. The clock said 2 a.m., too late to call Jordan. Nix listened to the rest of the recording. Nothing in the interview surprised Nix or felt different. He still seemed totally genuine and professional, if a little eccentric. It was what came immediately after the interview that shook her up. Who's that getting out of the car? That's Patrick Cherry, my foster father. What is Mrs. Cherry telling him? Uh, probably that there's a government agent in the house interviewing me. Smuckers. What? Nix listened to Gary trip and knock the tea over. For a moment, all went quiet. A faint, nice to meet you too, from Gary. Then Mr. Cherry spoke. What is he doing? He was half whispering, but still audible. He must have been inside or on the porch. He has an unloaded gun in his glove box, Mrs. Cherry said. He's not good for her. He needs to be stopped. Stopped how? Does it matter? Are you sure? She must be isolated. The more influenced she is, the harder it will be. What was Mrs. Cherry talking about? Who was this she they were referring to? Why hadn't Nix heard any of this? She's coming back said Mrs. Cherry. Then came the sound of a cup being replaced on the saucer. Nix was mopping up the spilled tea. She'd just come back with the paper towels. After a moment and a few inaudible words from Mr. Cherry, Gary said, What are you doing in my bag? Clang. Nix shut off the recorder and held it to her mouth. What did this mean? How did Mrs. Cherry know about the unloaded gun in Gary's glove box? He wouldn't have told her about it, would he? And why was Mr. Cherry asking for Mrs. Cherry's advice? Wasn't he the fortune teller? She must be isolated. The more influenced she is, the harder it will be. The harder it would be for them to what? Raise Nix to be an upstanding member of society? It seemed Mrs. Cherry was the one prophesying. Is that where Mr. Cherry got all his information? Why not just have Mrs. Cherry do the readings? Why the ruse? She would have to ask Jordan what he thought at school the next day. That reminded her. She still had vengeance to exact on Fawn. Jordan wanted to hear all about it tomorrow as well, and since she was wide awake... Hopefully she could find that old log again. Nick slowed her breathing, then her heart. She moved up through the ceiling and shot toward the field between the school and the trailer park. With her dark vision, finding the rotting stump was easy. The hard part would be carrying the ants back with her. She worked up some friction heat, then pulled off pieces of the wood, 
until several large black ants crawled out to defend their home. It kind of grossed Nyx out to pick up ants with her bare hands, but she could hardly feel them. She was pretty sure the insects wouldn't be able to bite her or anything. The ants were probably confused. They all looked like they were walking on invisible treadmills. They couldn't seem to get any purchase on Nyx's ghost hand, so they just wiggled in place. Nyx collected six or seven ants into her cupped hand before her heat was nearly used up. She rubbed her feet together a bit, then carefully flew back to her house. Clearly she needed more practice transporting live creatures, because she dropped all but two of the ants along the way. Two would be enough, she decided. There was no way she was going through all that again. If the pair of survivors didn't immediately find Fawn's face, Nyx could guide them along. Nyx got to her window and realized she hadn't thought to open it beforehand. Her plan was to carry the ants under Fawn's door, but she needed to get the insects into the house first. With great difficulty, Nyx managed to heat her free hand, unlock the window, and open just wide enough for two little super ants to soar through. They'd no sooner made it inside than something in the corner of the room moved. Nyx screamed and dropped the ants. Mrs. Cherry sat on the floor, half hidden in the shadows of Nyx's bedroom, but the image didn't make sense. It looked as if someone else were wrapped around her. Mrs. Cherry's eyes were dead and cold, yet taking up the same space were someone or something else's eyes.